we just kind of switched gears and we tried a couple different types of programs. I did a couple Zoom interviews that we pre-recorded them, we posted. And then we also did a couple short form things where we invited local authors to do little tours of their libraries. And then we also did programming that highlighted work by local authors that had come out during the pandemic. It not only strengthened our relationship with those local writers, but, you know, it offered great quality content and a variety of different types of content for our patrons. In today's episode, we will discuss hosting virtual author events with Stesha Brandon. Stesha is the Literature and Humanities Program Manager at the Seattle Public Library. She is also a contributor to the recent PLA ALA book, Pivoting During the Pandemic. Her chapter is titled Engaging Your Community with Digital Author Events. Welcome, Stesha. Let's start by hearing a little bit about your background and what you do at Seattle Public Library. I've been doing literary programming in the Seattle area for just about 20 years and have done that at the library since 2016. I also have a background in the book industry before I got into literary programming. So it's all books all the time for me. And at the library, I oversee our literature and humanities programming, which primarily means author programming. And then I oversee our one book, one city program, Seattle Reads. And I also oversee some endowed lectures. Was your library already doing digital author events before the pandemic hit? We were not doing digital author programming before the pandemic. The farthest that we had gone was recording programs for podcasts. And, you know, we would play them after the fact or allow people to access them after the fact. The biggest hurdle was kind of figuring out all of the technical side of things. And then other than that, it's been fairly straightforward. How did you go about starting? Most of the staff were really focused on getting the essential services back up and running, getting access to the collection um, back up and running. And so I was sort of on my own for the first few months of the pandemic. And what I did was actually sort of assessed the best platforms for use and also assessed sort of what types of events might work best digitally. And then I also thought about our community need. I heard from a lot of local authors that their book tours had been canceled or or shortened or that kind of thing. And so we ended up putting together a big spreadsheet uh, that was from, I think, March through the summer of local authors who had books coming out. And so I prioritized reaching out to them to find ways to support their work. At the same time was figuring out what platforms might work the best. And we're very lucky that our library foundation has supported us and letting us use their Zoom account. For the work that I've been doing, Zoom has been sort of the best all-round solution. We primarily use Zoom webinar for our author programming, you know, because it's more of a presentation style and the security is a little tighter. Do you do registration or? Yes, we do registration through our calendar uh, on the library's website. It's through Trumba, which is the calendar manager software. And so the registration goes through that and then people get the link once they register. And does that facilitate Q&A? And- Zoom webinar, you're able to have, there's a Q&A box, and then there's also a chat box at the bottom of folks' screens. And so if people want to ask questions, they can go into the Q&A box and, and post their questions. Initially, when we started, we actually locked down the chat so that people couldn't just comment, whatever. You know, we were a little worried about trolls and that kind of thing. But what we've discovered is that most folks are there to, to really just engage with each other and engage with the speakers. And so people, you know, I've actually loosened that that up a lot. And I had a program last week with like eight different readers 
uh, authors reading and there were several hundred people attending and they were chatting the whole time, you know, like re responding to the different readers. And it was really special. It, it really felt very um, intimate in a way, letting people be able to share their responses in that way. And are those archived on Seattle Public Library website? Can somebody go watch them after they've occurred? Yeah, with the speaker's permission, we actually record the, the webinar and post it on our library's YouTube channel. So it's actually on our SPL's YouTube channel. And what we also do is because Zoom doesn't offer live captioning as an option, like auto captioning as an option, what we've been doing for accessibility is after the program is finished, we caption the programs and then post them so that there's an accessible version. Getting back to your chapter in the Pivoting During the Pandemic book, you mentioned six lessons you learned along the way. Let's go over those. One of the things that was a little bit frustrating as I was first getting started was that I was wanting to do the programming and I felt like I wanted to do it at the same pace that I was doing. The, the reality was that everybody was learning new systems. Lots of people were still learning how to use Zoom, learning how to use digital access, things like that. And at the infrastructure side at the library, just, you know, getting the new processes in place took a really long time. Everybody was just working as hard as they could, but also, you know, we don't have to do this at the same pace that we were doing it before. We were all in a groove before we all knew how to do what we were doing before, but now we're learning new things and setting a, a goal for, oh, okay, I'm going to try to do two programs a month, or I'm going to try to do three programs a month, and then seeing how it goes, you know, because then you'll get a sense of the capacity. And so just wanting to make sure that you're patient with yourself, because, you know, we're all learning. That leads to lesson number two, which is be flexible. In terms of being flexible around what kind of programming, I was thinking about our community need and the local author ecosystem here. And we're very lucky in Seattle to have a robust literary community. And I really wanted to try and, and work with the local authors, even though that isn't necessarily, I mean, I, I do work with them regularly, but it wasn't, it hadn't been part of the plan before the pandemic hit. Let's say that I, I had other programming scheduled during the first months of the program of the pandemic that I ended up having to cancel. We just kind of switched gears and we tried a couple different types of programs. I did a couple Zoom interviews that we pre-recorded them, we posted. And then we also did a couple short form things where we invited local authors to do little tours of their libraries. And then we also did programming that highlighted work by local authors that had come out during the pandemic. It not only strengthened our relationship with those local writers, but, you know, it offered great quality content and a variety of different types of content for our patrons. Just for our listeners who maybe haven't ventured into digital author events yet, and if you've had any technological issues that you overcame or... We have definitely had some tech issues and I had made sure that the people that were working our chat, our quick information, had my contact information. And then I we've subsequently made a sort of a, a system where anybody that's hosting a public program will put the, you know, the actual Zoom link and contact information, all of that information somewhere where all of the staff can access it so that if a patron is like, I can't get into the Zoom, ah, you know, there's somebody that can help them that's not necessarily the person working the program. So lesson three in, in your article is use a growth mindset. What do you mean by that? 
it's normal for things to go wrong when we're trying new things. And so we can't all just start a new thing and be perfect at it, right? And yet we expect that. And particularly if you've been doing any kind of programming beforehand, you want the programming to feel seamless for your patrons. But the reality is that it's going to take a little while for you to figure out how to do it and for them to figure out how to log in and all of those things. I think that's where, you know, that situation where patrons couldn't get in and and that was very stressful and, and all of that, you know, in the big picture, the takeaway is like, okay, how do we make sure everybody has the information they need and that the patrons can access the event? We learned that and then we implemented a system to, to make that part of their job. Lesson four is partner up. At the library, we really do believe in supporting our community partners. And so that is something that we do sort of all the time. But this is a great time when organizations may not have the bandwidth to do something by themselves. And the library may not have the bandwidth to do something by themselves. And if you work together, you can put together a program. We usually partner with our local independent bookstores to host author programming. And so we continued that for the beginning of the pandemic. And they in fact, several of our, our indie bookstores didn't have their own Zoom accounts. And so I was able to sort of help facilitate access to a platform, and then we could continue with that programming. And so that was a great mutual benefit to everybody. I think mm-hmm. the one caveat that I mentioned in the chapter is that you want to make sure that you're being supportive and not making more work for organizations that are already strapped. I mentioned in the chapter, one of the other benefits of partnering is your town may not have an indie bookstore to work with, but there may be one in your state that you love and and want to support. And so you can work with them because it's digital. You don't have to even be in the same town. It's pretty great. Lesson five, communication is key. Because a lot of us are working remotely and we're producing the events digitally, you're not going to run into people in the hallway or by the water cooler and uh, or in the break room. And so it's super important that you communicate about your programs as early as possible and as much as possible with a variety of different colleagues. And some of that is just so that they have the information that they need to do their jobs. And then some of it is because that can help, you know, if they are serving patrons, say, through curbside pickup or through other means, they can be advocates for the programming if they know about it. Okay. And then your final lesson is assessment and reflection. What I would suggest is setting your benchmarks in advance so that you're not after the fact trying to determine if something's successful. And so benchmarks might be something like how many people attended the program, but if particularly with digital programming and wanting to be able to record it and and have people access it later, perhaps attendees at the actual event are not the only metric that might prove success. And so, you know, having people view it on YouTube might be another way that you can assess whether that program reached the intended audience. There's also qualitative ways to assess success, which is things like how engaged are attendees during the program. And like I mentioned, that program I did last week with eight readers, and we had about 200 people attend, and people were chatting the entire time. They were just really, really engaged with the the material. And so because we can't hear people applaud Mm -hmm. (laughs) or hoot and holler if they're excited, that's kind of, you know, you have to find those little clues. How do you handle a program where the audience seems to not be engaged? Some things that you can do during the event that can help encourage engagement. Some of that is 
reminding people that there's opportunities to connect with each other in the chat. You can remind them that there's opportunities to put their questions in the Q&A and sort of build that into the introduction and, and maybe into any sort of in-between times where you might be moderating. We also will often chat the links for the speaker's new book, links to the book on the library site. You can plan to make your program more engaging, and that might be something like ensuring that the program is only 30 minutes long or 40 minutes long rather than 60 minutes long, for example, because 60 minutes sitting in front of a screen with people talking at you is maybe less engaging than it might be if you were in an auditorium with other people and feeling that sort of vibe of being at an event and all of that. What should people consider when planning a budget for digital author events? The first thing that you need to consider is the cost of the platform. You know, whatever digital platform you're going to use will probably cost money. You know, if you only can afford a license that say lets 100 people register for the program, but you can stream it live to your YouTube channel or your Facebook, that means that still lots of people can access the event if even though only 100 people could technically register. The other thing that I think that is important to consider when you're thinking about your budget is you want to be able to pay people for their work. That was something I felt pretty strongly about wanting to make sure that the speakers that were coming were being compensated in some way. And, and you know, if they're on book tour, then the, that's something that maybe they've arranged with their publisher and they've agreed to do a certain number of events. But if you're just reaching out to a local author and saying, hey, I want you to do a program, I think it is important that you consider that that's going to be additional work for them and should, you know, try to compensate them. And then the last piece about the budget is, you know, something that we think about at the library at, at SPL, how does your budget support equity? And so when I think about how my budget's being spent, I want to make sure that there's that racial equity is something that I'm considering as I'm looking at how that money is being spent. So that's something that I, I encourage everybody to consider. And I know we talked a little bit about platforms before, but what should listeners consider when choosing a platform? Your needs are going to be different depending on the kind of programming that you're doing. So a Zoom webinar is more suited for a presentation style event. And so what that means is that the attendees can't see each other, can't speak. It's a lot safer in a lot of ways. You know, you don't have to worry about somebody turning on their camera and doing something inappropriate or saying something inappropriate. At the same time, it's sort of that doesn't feel as communal or collegial as a meeting setup might. And so if it's a class that you're doing, it's possible that a that a meeting setup might be a better fit for you. And the good news is that, you know, those are more affordable than the webinar licenses. So if you're wanting to do something that's a little bit more formal in its in its setup, then the webinar might be the better fit for you. You also could consider maybe doing live programming is too stressful or you don't have the bandwidth to manage that. And so consider doing pre-recorded programming and then soliciting questions from the audience in advance and then pre-record your conversation the way we're recording this podcast and then put that up after the fact. And then that's a little bit easier to manage. As far as registration, what are some pros and cons? The reason that we require pre-registration through SPL is because that is, again, a safety measure to sort of hopefully avoid trolls. You know, the link isn't just out there on the on the website for the public to access. 
I recommend that because it's one way to kind of make sure that you know that the people that are coming are actually the ones that want to come (laughs) to the program. That said, it is a barrier to access. And so, you know, if you want to do something where you stream it live on your Facebook, that is actually a a great way to make content available. And our, for example, our story times, they were the first ones to sort of leap into this and they were doing that through Facebook Live and making the story times available on Facebook Live. And of course, that doesn't require pre-register registration or anything. And so, you know, that's way more accessible for the public. How can listeners be sure their events are accessible to those with sensory impairments? Closed captioning is available through Zoom if you have a live captioner, if you hire somebody to do that. Some of the other platforms, Microsoft Teams and Google Meet, actually offer auto-captioning, as does YouTube, offers auto-captioning. For our programs, we hire ASL interpretation for specific programming. What would you do if your event was Zoom-bombed? I think that that is something that I spent the most time thinking about when we were first getting started was trying to plan, okay, so if our internet goes down, what will we do? If somebody comes in and, and starts using hate speech or Zoom bombing and, you know, something, what will we do? And, you know, trying to come up with a sort of a plan so that if something like that happened, we've already kind of thought through what we would want to do. And the other piece that I would recommend if people have the staff and capacity to do this is don't be the only person working the program. (laughs) Again, because it's digital, we sometimes think, oh, it's much easier. We don't need as many staff people. You know, if you are the person running the back end of the Zoom, Zoom, you know, launching the Zoom and kind of making sure that that's all running smoothly. And then you're also hosting the event and on camera some of the time and having to introduce people Mm -hmm. and all of that. That's a lot. If you also have to then manage the Q&A and make sure that, you know, there's not anything untoward happening there or, you know, things like that, I think that it's just too much. So, you know, if you have at least one other person that can help and then you talk in advance, okay, so here's what's going to happen. And I actually spent some time training staff with me on, you know, how do you dismiss somebody? How do you kick them out of the event if you needed to, you know, things like that. What's the timeline for your event? Who should be doing what? Who's comfortable taking charge, I should say? You know, what would you do if something went wrong? And then kind of maybe even practicing for that. As far as marketing, what have you found to be successful? You know, we have been doing a fair amount still uh, promotion through e-newsletters, email blasts, that kind of thing, and on our social media. And I actually just did an assessment of our 2020 programming, and it looked like something like 80% of our attendees found out about the programs through our social media or our e-newsletter, you know, right? So that's, that's a lot. Now, the only kind of bad thing about that is that means that we're not necessarily reaching people that don't already know about our programming. And Mm -hmm. so as I think uh, for this year, that's where maybe thinking about strategic partnerships or doing more outreach so that we're ensuring that, you know, all of our patrons, they may not think of us for author events all the time, but remind them, okay, hey, this is something that you can, you can sign up for the newsletter, you can check our Facebook, and you can learn about our events. But is there anything else you want to remind people as far as assessment? 
I would encourage people to think about how they are going to gather their patron feedback, particularly because it's digital. You want people to answer right away because, you know, they're going to be on to the next thing. And so getting the survey out to them in a timely manner is super important. You can with Zoom webinar and I think a couple of the other platforms, you can do things like poll people during the program. So you could theoretically ask, how did you hear about this and poll people during the program? What types of formats have you used? And of those, which is your favorite to do? We have done a few different formats. Um, The bulk of the programming has been live author presentations. And I would say that that is probably, I wouldn't say it's necessarily my favorite, but I think that that offers the most opportunity for patron engagement. And so that's why we've done those because they're the closest to the in-person events that we were doing before. As I mentioned, we did a couple, we invited a couple local authors to give us tours of their home libraries, and that was really well received on our our social media, and it's also not a huge ask. And it's fun, and I think it appeals to people, because, you know, people are kind of inherently nosy, at least I am. (laughs) You know, you want to see what people have on their shelves, what writers are having on their shelves. So that was super fun, and I'm going to be doing more of those, I think, this year. Do you think that you will continue digital programming after we're back to normal? Yes, I I do think that we will. I got some wonderful feedback from patrons saying that they would not, you know, they don't feel comfortable driving at night. And so they were so grateful to be able to watch the program digitally and not have to leave their home. And so I think we're going to do what we can to make the programs as accessible in that way and offer in-person and digital, you know, sort of simultaneously for folks. I love that we're able to offer this, but I do worry that, you know, there's a percentage of our patrons who would come to in-person events before that are not able to access digital programming. And so I look forward to being able to do in-person programming again, because I think that those we're not currently serving those patrons. And so I'd like to be able to offer both. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. That was Stesha Brandon. Stesha is the Literature and Humanities Program Manager at the Seattle Public Library. 